In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. 1960, a guy named Francis Gary Powers is flying a U-2 spy plane over Soviet airspace. He's shot down. He survives. He's picked up by the Soviet police. He's interrogated. After his arrest, he is sentenced to prison for espionage. Three years earlier, in New York City, a guy by the name of Rudolf Abel, whose alias was William Fisher, is picked up in an FBI, FBI sting operation, and he's arrested for having served as a hidden KGB agent in New York City for several years. He, too, is interrogated and tried and convicted of espionage, and he ends up becoming the prisoner exchange in the release of Francis Gary Powers four years after his arrest and his conviction. Rudolph Abel's story is told in that film that came out several years ago called Bridge of Spies. You may remember that movie. The lawyer who was called upon by the federal agents to represent Rudolph Abel was an insurance salesman, of all people, who was trained in law. He's played by Tom Hanks. And Tom Hanks, that character, his lawyer, on three separate occasions in the film asks Rudolph Abel a question, essentially the same question. And each time, Rudolph Abel offers the most interesting answer in the midst of being charged as a spy. Listen. I don't work for the government. I am here to offer my services as your legal counsel. If you accept them as such, I work for you. If I accept you. Are you good at what you do? Yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty good. Have you represented many accused spies? No, not yet. This will be a first for the both of us. All right. All right. You accept? Yes. All right. Good. Okay. Let's start here. If you are firm in your resolve not to cooperate with the U.S. government... I am. Yeah. Then do not talk to anybody else about your case, inside of government or out, except to me, to the extent that you trust me. I have a mandate to serve you. Nobody else does. Quite frankly, everybody else has an interest in sending you to the electric chair. All right. You don't seem alarmed. Would it help? How did we do in there? Uh, Not too good. Apparently, you're not an American citizen. That's true. And according to your boss, you're not a Soviet citizen either. Well, the boss isn't always right. But he's always the boss. Do you never worry? Would it help? What do you think will happen when you get home? I think I'll have a vodka. Yeah. Yeah. But 
Rudolph, is there not the possibility? That my people are going to shoot me. Yes. You're not worried. Would it help? The man has, as we say, ice in the veins, right? I've never been a spy except for playing in a capture the flag game. So I don't know what he feels. But what he demonstrates there is the kind of inner calm that is rather remarkable that gets films made after you. Would it help to be alarmed or anxious that the U.S. government's going to send you the electric chair if they have their way? Would it help? Would it help for you to be beside yourself if you get back to Soviet Russia in a prisoner exchange and you're shot for what you might have shared? Would it help to be terrified? Would it help to let that fear take root in you? Would it help? It's a great question. It's a question that he apparently demonstrated a certain proficiency in. You may wonder why am I invoking this story from almost 60 years ago and why invoking this film? Because I believe that the kind of inner state of being that Rudolf Abel reflects in some ways is the kind of inner heart that has come to believe everything that Paul has told us thus far in this one chapter that we've been looking at for six weeks, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is out to say much to us, and this week he's out to summarize his case before us, if you will, before the tribunal of anyone who would listen. And the question that he poses to us whenever you and I are tempted to alarm or worry or terror is, would it help? And that's not a cute, curt kind of question. It's a question we worth put to ourselves whenever we're tempted in that direction. Paul's answer to that question is, no, it won't help. But in these last several verses of the passage, he's going to give us both the answer in more elaborate terms, the reason why that's true, and then the implications from why it is true. Would it help? Paul's going to give us an answer, the reason for his answer, and the implications from that answer. So if you're able to stand, I wonder if you might, at the end of chapter 8. Romans 8, starting in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? For God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will we not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring against any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it's written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, 
nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the reassuring word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I will admit that the whole title for this series is a bit too casual for its content, but we've called this series in Romans 8 an elevator pitch because what elevator pitches do is provide you the grandest contours in the briefest amount of world time. And that's what Paul has done to give us the grandest tour in the briefest amount of time about what Jesus came to say, what he came to do, what he came to accomplish. And here in verse 31, he's out to tell us, rhetorically speaking through a question, so then, what shall we conclude? What am I out to leave you with as you exit the elevator, having now heard everything that I've said in this short trip to the top of the building? One idea. One truth. And it's a truth that's more than just an answer to Rudolf Abel's rhetorical question, does fear and alarm help? It's more than an answer to that. It's meant to be for us a tool. It's meant to be something for us that we employ, something that we bring before our brains, something that provokes our prayer, something that invites our tears more than our silence. It is a truth that is a tool, and that tool is out to help us face the one thing that has more influence over us from our birth to our death than perhaps anything else we'd like to admit. And that one thing is fear. What are we afraid of? What are you afraid of today? What kept you up last night? What keeps you on your mind this week? Look, the first thing that you felt when you came out of your mother's womb was not to laugh. And the first impulse that you might have when you have your first brush with mortality will not be a chuckle. It will more likely be a shudder. And that's natural. And that's unavoidable. But the problem is, when fear or terror begins to take root in you, what does it do? It stifles. It steals. It stymies. It does all those things. Because fear is that powerful. And Rudolph's question is Paul's question. If you go there and it takes root, does it help? What is Paul's answer to that question? The answer, of course, is that it's no, it doesn't help. Why doesn't it help? Because if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Friends, if you just went home this afternoon and memorized that one line and sat with it for 15 minutes, gosh, what if you believed it today? What would shift in the way you thought about the rest of your Sunday or the rest of your week? If you really believed it, if it's really true, how would that change everything that is preoccupying you today? It would change everything. Now, what is Paul not saying? Because we always got to make sure we understand what he's not saying before we understand what he's saying. He's not saying that when you come to trust Jesus and that his blood covers your sin and that forever you are his, he is not saying that when that happens, all enemies, foreign and domestic, cosmic and material, past, present, and future just sort of disappear. He's not saying that. 
You do not, when you come to believe in him, enter into this sort of demilitarized zone. It's actually more like you step into a war zone, you're going to get caught in the crossfire, and you're going to feel it from every direction, and you thought, I signed up for this? That's the paradox, among others. He is not saying it gets better (laughs) when you trust him. He is saying this, though. God is so favorably disposed to you because of what Jesus has done that everything else, anything else that opposes you will never be able to negate that, never be able to nullify that, never be able to even mitigate that or, or, or diminish it. That to trust in what he has done for you and what Jesus has done for you is to make him so favorably disposed to you that nothing can change that. Nothing. And that's good news. What Paul is doing there is what we might call an argument from scale. What do I mean by that? Whenever people are trying to help you see how big is that spacecraft, right? They show you a picture of the Saturn V or of Elon Musk's new toy, right? And then they put a figure of a six-foot person right next to it, and you go, wow, that big, right? It's an argument from scale. It's an analogy. It's, it's a diagram. Oh, that's, it's that big in light of what I know what's big, and now I have a sense of what really is big. Paul is out to help us to see that which we have from God and that which we might suffer here in scale. Um, you may remember the line from the Fellowship of the Ring when uh, Frodo uh, falls over on the midst up the snowy-capped mountain and he drops the ring and Boromir picks it up. Yeah, there's Boromir, right? And Boromir says, It is a strange fate that we should suffer so much fear and doubt over so small a thing, such a little thing, that this itty-bitty thing holds this whole fellowship and all of Middle-earth captive to fear and to doubt that the smallest things have insurmountable influence over us. And that's not just a story. That's truth. That's your experience. One virus in one guy, patient zero, somewhere in Wuhan, now holds the whole world in rapt attention. One virus. You can't even see it. One cell misfires in Travis Johnson. And it takes a man, and it debilitates a family, and it sends a whole community into grief and fear. And that'll instill fear and doubt. You can have just one experience. It might happen tomorrow. An event, a moment, a tragedy, it could happen like that. And you see the rest of your life and your experience through a totally different lens. You are forever changed. One little thing can have enormous impact. Small stuff can be big. What Paul is not saying is, suck it up. Move on. He is asking you, though, to see it all in scale. He's asking you to see it like wise people always say to you. You've got to see things in perspective. You've got to see it from God's point of view. What Paul is out to say is, is this. What we have in God and from God is always going to be greater than whatever you can lose or suffer in this life. And that is so easy to say, and it's a lot easier to preach, and it's the hardest thing to believe. But that's his argument. Why does it not help to be afraid and to be mesmerized by your fear? 
Because God is so for us that what you have in him will always be greater than what you can lose here. And you have to see it from that argument from scale. What does it look like to go there? What does it look like to embrace that idea? As bizarre and almost as impossible as it sounds. Because look, I can say that to you, and Paul knows that, but you and I both know we need help to believe that. You want a picture of what somebody that got help to believe that looks like? Here, I may have told you the story about his, his name is John Hull. He's from Down Under. At the age of four, he's got cataract surgery because he had a congenital issue with his eyes, and they botched the surgery. And from that point forward, his life, his eyes began to continually degenerate until by the age of 40, he's in total darkness. After he's married and has children, and after, after he becomes a full professor of religion at a theological college in Australia. And the thing about blindness, I learned from John Hull's story, is not only do you lose your sight, but in time, you lose the ability to even conjure up a memory of those you love. You can't, you can't marshal even a mental image in your darkness of what your wife looked like. All you can do is hear her voice. But there was a moment after he'd come to trust in Jesus where he's sitting in a worship service and he's overwhelmed by what the experience was. And in his own words, he said this, the thought keeps coming back to me. Could there be a strange way in which blindness is a dark, paradoxical gift? Is it really like a kind of painful purging through a death? If blindness is a gift, it's not one that I would wish on anybody. But in the midst of the experience of music in church, as the whole place and my mind were filled with the wonderful music, I found myself saying, I accept the gift. I accept the gift. I was filled with a profound sense of worship. I felt that I was in the presence of God, that the giver of the gift had drawn near to me to inspect his handiwork. He had, as it were, thrown his cloak of darkness around me from a distance, but now had drawn near to seek a kind of reassurance from me that everything was all right, that he had not misjudged the situation, that he did not have to stay. And so I said to him, it's all right. There's no need to wait. Go on. You can go now. Everything's fine. He lost more than he can measure. But here is a picture. Here is a real life story that is not contrived of someone who has come to believe that God is so for him that what he has in him and from him is still greater than whatever he might lose in this life. And therefore, Rudolf Abel's question to him, would it help? No. If God is for us, who can be against us? Why can he have that kind of confidence? Why can Paul speak so surely? For we are confident of this, he says. How can he believe that? It's just an answer. How is he not guilty of just wishful thinking? Because there's evidence to back up his claim. The answer to the question, is it help to be terrified? No, because God is so for us. But what's the evidence of that? Really clear and put very carefully in the second verse. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Exhibit A, the top bullet point of his list of believing that God is for us is what he has given to secure that, to manifest that, to make sure it's true. I will know 
what you value when you tell me what you paid to get it. You can tell what somebody really values by what they invest to obtain it. And now we see what God values by what it cost him to get it. Now we see what Jesus values by what it cost him to be that sacrifice. You know what somebody values by what it, that they pay out in order to obtain it. That God is for us through what he did to get us is clear. But have you ever thought what the nature of him being for us really is based upon what he cost him? Lean in here. I know that's a little thick. Look. Newsflash. A politician will tell you that they are for you. <laughs> right? And when they say that they are for you, it may, if we are to be positive for them or, or, or be kind to them, we may believe that they have a belief in a certain way of life that, we think, that they think will benefit you, and in that sense they are for you, and then they're going to fight to do that for you, right? The more cynical side of us, though, we hear people and politicians say, I am for you, and what they really are saying is, I want your vote. Your vote is valuable to me. I am for you. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't, but that's what they mean. And you know what they value by what they say they're for you for and what, they, what it costs them to get that. A piano teacher. A piano teacher will sit with you. They will assign to you scales. They will teach you the difference between legato and staccato. They will listen to you play music while this shrill shudder goes down their back. But why do they do it? What do they value in that kind of investment? What they value is the glory of music. What they value is seeing that kind, of, that kind of love come alive in a student. That's what they value. And that's why they invest in the way that they do. It costs them in that way because of that's what they value. So what do we learn about what God values if it costs his son to prove that he's for us? I'll tell you what it proves. I'll tell you what he values. He is saying to us that the most valuable thing in the universe the one thing that is most valuable to you if you have it, and the one thing that would be most costly to you if you lost it, is communion with him. The most valuable thing in the universe, he is telling us, by virtue of what it cost him to prove that he is for us, is communion with him. And forgiveness is just the doorway into that. It's just the beginning. It's not everything. It's the beginning of it. This is telling you, this is the pathway into communion with him. And his forgiveness is the doorway into that. That's the most valuable thing. Why is that important? Why does that matter to you? Because when you suffer what's happening to you, all your deepest desires are being denied you. And in those moments, as we've said before, and even Paul has said himself, when you are suffering, you think that everything that is good in this world is being taken from you. That everything of value is gone by virtue of your suffering. And Paul was out to here to say, hat in hand, and yet with a great deal of fierceness and love, that while much of what you love in this world is of great value to you, it's not the thing of greatest value. The thing of greatest value to anyone is communion with God, of knowing and being known by him, of realizing that there is a love that does remain that will not let you go. That's communion. That's belief. That's what the gospel is about to introduce us to. Look, 
I've had to preach that idea to myself this week because I feel like I want to have more interest in news than in communion with him. He is saying, by virtue of what it cost him to prove that he is for us and to ensure that he'd be for us forever, is to tell us that the one thing that you most want and the one thing you should be most afraid to lose is communion with him. And forgiveness is but the doorway into that. That's the evidence that he's for us. What are the implications? Why does it matter for you and I to hold any of that true? Why does it matter that we need to have an answer to the question, does it help to be afraid and to be terrified? Look, look. I know that fear and despair is complicated. One of the things I read this morning was this longitudinal study on the increase of suicide in our day. And all of these experts don't have a clue what correlates with the innocence. It, 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 it cuts across demographics. It cuts across ethnicities. It cuts across ages. It cuts across where you are in the economic cycle. It cuts across whether you had access to social media or not. Nobody can crack the nut about why suicide is of an increase in our day. It is the highest since it's been since 1938. So I know that what threatens you and what leads you to despair is complicated. I realize that. And it's not me or Paul being curt to just say to you, well, just ask yourself the question, does it help to be afraid? I know it's more complicated than that. I know there's more of a story to that. Therefore, to face it might mean more than just asking yourself, does it help? But it won't be less. It won't be without at least asking yourself the question, if God is for us, who can really be against us? You have to ask that. That's why it matters. Two reasons why it matters, and here's where we land this plane. Not only is the answer to the question, does it help? No, because if God is for us, who can be against us? And no, that's not just a pipe dream, because just look at what he gave to secure for us the one thing that's of most value to us. There's two reasons why it matters, two implications, and both of them have to do with fear. One of them has to do with fear of the thing that you're afraid you will never be able to shake, and the other thing has to do with fear of what you are afraid will actually leave. The thing that you and I are afraid to shake, afraid that that we'll never shake, that we will never be able to lose, is the regret of our story and the condition of our hearts. You and I have a story, and we have said things and done things that will never be erased from our story. And there are even things that we have not said and not done, and yet well up within our heart that speaks to the very condition of our heart, that if we could have a little dry erase, you know, uh, eraser, we'd get rid of it, we can't. And there is in us this fear that with that sidled to us, as we think about a day in which we will meet him, could we disqualify ourselves from being in his favor? What is Paul's answer to those fears of what we think we can never shake? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. In that day, to these people, who Paul was speaking to, they would be accused of blasphemy or they would be accused of being an enemy of the state and they might think to themselves, is it true? 
Will the accusation stick? Do I need to be worried? Can I ever lose that? Can I ever be disqualified? And Paul's answer is no. In that day and in every day, you and I, as I've already said, have parts of our story and the corruption of our own hearts. And we might wonder then about that future day when we face a God whom we know calls himself one who is just. Can I do anything to disqualify myself? Can I do anything if I have besmirched the name of Jesus even though I have claimed him and run to him for refuge? And Paul's answer is, who can raise any charge against God's elect? This story matters. Because the thing that you're afraid that you'll never be able to shake, it's covered. The other thing that you're afraid of is the thing you're afraid that you might very well lose. The thing that you might think would just change everything. And that's where Paul ends this whole part less with words than more like it's like a poem. It's like a hymn. He he rattles off this litany of all these things that we think might absolutely torpedo our lives and torpedo our souls. Can tribulation, can distress, can fire, can nakedness, can shame, can any of that do what? Can it separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? No! Can the things I'm worried about in my past, the things I'm preoccupied in my future, can the things that happen in my life, can the things that happen in my death, can any of that separate me from who God is in Christ? No. And this is not a new idea. Adam and Eve, when they gave their high-handed rejection of God, that did not separate them from the love of God who was in Christ. Abraham, when he lied about his wife, did not separate him from the love of God. Jonah in the belly of a whale, David in a cave, David on his knees because of his confession of sin of murder and adultery. That could not separate him from the love of God. Job in his affliction, the woman at the well, Nicodemus in his ignorance, Zacchaeus in his fraudulence, Peter in his prejudice, Paul in his persecution. None of that could separate him from the love of God. That's great news. And you could add your own litany of things to that list, and Paul would nod. You can lose your mind. You can lose your work. You can lose everything that you worked for. You can lose everything that you bled for. You can lose out on the child you thought you were going to make into a saint but didn't. You can lose on the spouse you thought you were going to turn into a hero but couldn't. And you can say goodbye to your children in death. And you might think, that you would be separated from the love of God who was in Christ. And Paul was saying, no, you can't. That which you might be afraid to lose because of what Christ has done and your faith in that, you can't be separated from it. (coughs) And that matters in two ways for how we come to this table. You know how it plays out in real life? It plays out in real life in whatever else you love in this world. And there are plenty of things to love, to be sure. St. Augustine, long before Jesus became real to him, had a childhood friend, a dear buddy, did everything together. They loved him like a brother. Friend gets sick on his deathbed, everybody thinks. Augustine is beset by that. Friend recovers. Augustine goes on some journey. Friend dies. And Augustine is inconsolable. He's blasted out of life, disoriented. He's lo- he feels as if he's lost everything. 
And then in his confessions, which is honestly a one extended prayer to God, 250 pages or however long it is, he reflects upon why he was so inconsolable about his friend in his prayer to God. And he said this, the reason why that grief had penetrated me so easily and deeply was that I had poured out my soul onto the sand by loving a person sure to die as if he would never die. The greatest source of repair and restoration was the solace of other friends with whom I loved what I loved as a substitute for you, Lord. And this was a vast myth and a long lie. For wherever the human soul turns itself other than to you, it is fixed in sorrows, even if it is fixed upon beautiful things external to itself, which would nevertheless be nothing if they did not have their being from you. St. Augustine is not decrying Valentine's Day. He is not kicking to the curb anybody that has loved another person. He is only saying you are submitting yourself to a vast myth and a lie if you turn someone who will die as if they would not. And therefore, God is for you in such a way that it should humble you in how you love everyone else. And it should make you think of the one from whom they have their being in a different light. It will humble you when you believe this about whom and how you love them. And it will do one other thing. It will give you courage for what you risk with what you have. And I can't think of a more poignant picture of that kind of risk than what you saw maybe this week in Wuhan. That person in a hazmat suit holding up a sign about the love of Jesus and having a bag of M95 masks for people that don't have one, that one is a believer of a local church in Wuhan. Ordinarily, they would not be able to be out on the streets like that, ostensibly not only of being of help to people, but also of speaking of Jesus. They would be shooed away. It's just you can't do that where that are. And yet this week, they're out there, and they're putting themselves at risk. And the policemen that would ordinarily revile them for being on the street in the way that they are have now come to revere them for the way they have come to risk themselves. And if you read in the prayer this week from a local pastor in Wuhan, he put it in very sharp relief. Wuhan's pestilence cannot separate us from the love of Christ. This love is in our Lord Jesus These words are so comforting for us. We already have one body with Christ. We have a part in his sufferings. We have a part in his glory. All of Christ is ours and our all is Christ. Therefore, Christ is with us as we face the pestilence in this city. The pestilence cannot harm us. If we die in the pestilence, it is an opportunity to witness to him and even more to enter into his glory. That's risk. They are their own answer to Rudolf Abel's question. Would it help? Nope. I know, and you know, or I'm betting rather, that when it comes to being humble in the way you love others, or being courageous in risking what you have, you and I perhaps all feel rather flat-footed, that those muscles of our heart may feel a little atrophied. Me too. That's why we're coming to this table. To give us the bad news and then the greater news that we needed him to do this. 
We come to this table to be reminded of the way in which he is for us and the extent to which he was for us and therefore what we're most to value. And we're coming to this table to bring our fears. To bring our fears about how we're afraid to lose whom we love, even though it's proper and natural. He's here to say, there is something even greater. We come to this table to bring our fears of what we're afraid to risk. And he is here to say unto us, I know. And in our unbelief, he says, I will come for you. Friends, if you come with those fears... I invite you to bring them here. And I invite you to dine on him. And somehow in the mystery of what this table does, whenever fear comes before us, it will be fitting and proper for us to ask ourselves, would it help? 